Welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today we have an awesome episode with Aaron Gillespie. You may know Aaron from his band Under Oath or The Almost or his solo career. Aaron and I talk about his creative process as well as his production work, uh, since he's producing work out of his studio in Salt Lake City. And we get into all sorts of things about how he feels about modern music and what he does to make the music he does. I think it's a really awesome chat, so check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So... You have a new record out. What made you feel like you wanted to do this more stripped down sound? Uh, I had gone through a divorce last year and I was sort of like holed up in my condo kind of smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey on the balcony. And I would clean myself up a couple days a week to hang out with my son. And then I uh, realized that that's just, that's never been my life to be that type of person, you know? So I went and did this record, and I felt like the only way to heal was, you know, this way. And I felt like kind of, you know, piling things onto it that weren't real would make it sort of deem it un unusable in a way. You know what I mean? So for me, I just I needed it to be this raw, honest kind of deal. So yeah. So has most of your songwriting in the past come from some great pain, or is it usually? Yeah. I think I'm mostly a negative songwriter. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, like I, 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 there's a Spready Stadellis quote I kind of love that's like, uh, pain seems to motivate people a lot more than joy when it comes to making art. I, I think like, let's try to think about great songs. Mm -hmm. Like great songs are either about like pining for love or love unrequited or pain. Like when was the last time you like, with the exception of, like, the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how often do you go, oh, that's a great, happy song. I want to be a part. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah I totally do. Like, I, I just don't think that that's, like, a real, I don't know, man. I, I just don't, I don't like that. Well, I think a lot of us who especially come into punk and hardcore as kids, like, we're looking for something to soothe the pain of adolescence when we're younger, and uh, that's where we find music. As cheesy as that is, I think, I think it's a bit of that, and I also think it's kind of like... I don't know, you're like stressed or or you're stressed on the the pressure of adolescence. I don't mm -hmm. know that I don't know th I don't think adolescence is necessarily like a problem. I think adolescence is more like 
I don't know. Adolescence is more of like a, it creates issues. You know what I mean? Yes. Flooded with bad chemicals, having to make big decisions for your life that you're not ready to make yet. Right. I mean, as I, I, dude, I read this thing the other day. It's so interesting. I don't know if this is true. I have a four-year-old, so, you know, I'm raising a child. And I read this thing the other day that it said that there is some sort of, there is a lack of or influx of chemicals that makes a teenager's brain essentially a healthy teenager's brain essentially makes them mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've seen the same like thing. It, and I don't know if that's true. And that's super interesting, though, because I, I think about myself. At, I think the worst age for me was 15. Mm-hmm. You know, because at 15, you can't fucking drive. Yep. You know what I mean? You can't smoke cigarettes. You can't do anything. You're just stuck. And I started touring at 15. And all the dudes were older than me. And I was always just like, oh, here I am, just hanging out. You know, so I, I remember having that sensation, like, what's wrong with me? Mm. You know what I mean? So maybe maybe that maybe there's a piece of that that's true. I don't know. I, I read the same thing. I, I think I say it's uh, you, you have a flood of cortisol, which makes us make bad decisions. Well, yeah. Getting back to you a bit, you did say something interesting about how you were thinking about these. Songs. Were there songs that came to mind that like really were influential on you that you were like, you know, I want to do something like this? Yeah, a little bit of that. And then a little bit of like, I had two Christian market solo records out before this. This is my first like general market solo record. I kind of, I have my beliefs, but I kind of got burnt out by the business of that. It's just a little bit from what I've seen. And I'm not saying everyone, but from what I've seen, you know, it's, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in that world. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted out of that world. So I started touring and just sort of playing my catalog under a songs and almost songs and just playing like what, you know, whatever came to my brain really. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted, before I went through the divorce, I started thinking about having like a, you know, a component, a component on record that was what I do live. So this is basically that. And, and the songs ended up being a little more painful, the originals and kind of the covers I picked because of what I went through. But essentially this is what I do live on a solo level. And I wanted to be able to do it, you know, with uh, on a record. So, yeah. So you said it said something interesting to me. So you talk about, the two Christian records. Is there like a, when you talk about that market, like I noticed I didn't see that on Spotify. Is that not released somewhere? Or I, I'm very unfamiliar with the Christian market being yeah. a atheist from Brooklyn where you get about as polarly opposite <laughs> from that. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know if they pulled them down or not. I got in a lot of trouble with the Christian world. Doesn't like you if you're not like really clean. I mean, and that's a blanket statement, but, but for the most part, like in the music world, and I've just never been a squeaky clean guy. And lately, I've just kind of come out and said, I think the whole industry is gross and I don't want any part of it. So they're probably pretty pissed off. <laughs> uh, maybe they maybe they took it down. I, you know, I don't I, I couldn't tell you, man, to be honest. Okay. I don't know. Uh, so were those records as Aaron Gillespie or the almost? Yeah. Okay. As Aaron Gillespie. Yeah. Uh-huh. So my perception, I don't know if it was just from lack of research, that The Almost was your solo project. Why your own name instead of The Almost for this record? I think I got confused. Like, The Almost, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, I stopped doing that in, like, 2013. But I was, I just wanted to have, like, a straight-up rock band with The Almost, and I ended up, like, that was my, that was my split off of, uh, split off of Under Oath, and it just got too convoluted. You know, like, having other guys in the band and trying to, like, I, I just wanted something always that was mine. You know what I mean? That was my own deal. So yeah, I ended up just kind of disbanding that and doing my own thing. Understood. So tell me about how a song comes into being usually for you. I'm a binge writer. So what that means is I won't 
write a song for like two years and then I'll write like 150 songs in like a month. So literal 150 or like, yeah, that's pretty literal. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about for myself. I write songs for other people all the time. You know, I have a publishing career and I own a studio and produce records. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a daily thing for me is writing, but for my own music, I mean, 150 might be a little bit egregious, but a lot. And sometimes it just hits you. Usually it hits me like I'll be sitting on the couch and I'm just like, oh, that's a really, that's a thing. That's a thing I have to do now. So I'll go. And now I, I, I moved all my music into my studio. So I don't have anything in my house. So it's getting a little, it's getting a little frustrating. I might have to turn the upstairs bedroom into a kind of a project studio, which I felt stupid for doing. I feel stupid for even thinking because my studio is a mile away. But if it's midnight. <laughs> Yes, and you're in your un- you're in your underwear. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I, so anyways, I about yeah. the same thing. My my studio's an hour and fifteen minutes away, so it's that thing of not easy to create when you get inspired. No, I mean that's the thing. I used to have a big project studio in the house, and then I moved to a smaller place. Kind of wanted to just downscale and live in the city, and I just don't have any room, honestly. You know what I mean? Like I collect vinyl. So I have like a thousand vinyl in the living room right now. Oh, wow. on the, I, I got all these organizers. They're all up against the wall, but I don't know where I would put. I don't know. So yeah, I'm a bit of a binge writer, man. I kind of go through these things. If I go through like a monumental season or a painful season, usually I won't do anything for like a month. I'll just hurt through it. And then, and then a month afterwards, it'll just diarrhea out of me. It just depends on, it depends on, it depends on the which way the wind hits me. Honestly, it's, it's never the same. Uh, for me, I think for some artists, there can be a formulaic way, but that's just not me. Gotcha. So when you say never the same, is it never the same in output or like whether it starts with lyrics or music or a song title? It's never the same. Mm. It really isn't. It, it is always something different, you know, um, depending on what I'm going through and kind of the vibe and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. So you talked about having your own studio. Can you tell us a little bit about your studio? Yeah, I... Uh, I have a studio in downtown Salt Lake City. That's where I live. My ex-wife is from there. Um, we moved here a few years ago when I started playing drums for Paramore. I was really gone a lot. And now that Under Oath has got back together, and even though we are divorced, uh, you know, we have a kid together, and it's easy. It's easier to have you know her around her family. And so, yeah, I have a studio. It's about a mile from my house. It's a 102-year-old bungalow that's been converted. I'm really, I'm really happy with it. Like I really, I really love the space. We've done ten records there this this year. Oh wow! So been, yeah, we've been really, really busy. So when you um, say ten records, is that you producing other bands? Yeah, I did my own record and and a buddy's record. Those are so eight producing jobs this year. I was I've been producing for a while, and I would travel and rent studios and stuff like that. But I kind of got sick of like reaching for something that I know I have and not being able to find it or having to go pay to rent it out of the budget. You know, so now it's. And bands like to come here because it's beautiful, you know. So, I, I mean, I, I really have a good time with it. You know, I, I, I go on two more weeks of a solo tour, which starts tomorrow night. And then I have another record. I start producing again all through until next year. I start producing again on the second of next month through till next year. So, yeah. Cool. So you've worked with a ton of great producers. Um, it, it was actually yeah. funny, like looking through this list, I'm like, wow, you've really worked with like a lot of my favorite production people. Can you tell me some lessons you've learned from other people that have resonated with you? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting is everyone has their own practices um, and everyone kind of has their own quirks and things that they do in the studio. But what I've found all great producers to hold is the thing where 
I did a record with Marshall Altman, who did like he's done so many records, Citizen Cope, and so many unbelievable records. Lots of country records. Um, he did all the solo stuff for uh, The Watchmen. Um, oh, well, yeah. He's done some Rage stuff, and he told me one day he used to be in L.A. and he's a Nashville guy now, and he told me he said part of the reason I moved from L.A. is because I have this rule in the studio. I have this one rule. And the only rule is there are no rules. <laughs> and, it, and it really kind of resonated with me because, you know, I've done some gorilla shit in my day mm-hmm. and some stuff that is technically really incorrect. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Totally. And had great success doing it. And I learned those things from these people that I trust, these producers that are like, look, like that kind of sounds like shit, but it doesn't sound right for this. You know, that's always the answer to the question always needs to be, is that right for this moment? Is that right for this song? Is that right for this part? So yeah, the only rule is there's no rules. That's a big life lesson I learned from great producers that I trust. And the other one is this: is this simply that that you got to serve the song. Mm-hmm. You know, so many so many young artists. I you know, I work with a lot of young bands, and and I see this all the time. Is there's such an ego thing mm-hmm. of like, well, this guy wrote the drum part, so he has to play it. And my question is always, well, who plays it better? Yes, is it the guy who wrote it or the other guy? You know what I mean? Like, and you know, we learned that in, in Under Oath at a really young age, and we had a lot of success at a really young age. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of that is because we just got out of the way and let the songs do their thing. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, you can't, you can't like try to synthesize something because you feel like you it's you're endowed to do so. You know, you're entitled because you're the drummer, so or the bass player, or the singer. So you should sing this. If a guy sings the harmony better, why the fuck are you doing it? You know what I mean? So like, that's, I think that's probably the most valuable lesson I've ever learned. It's, it's a great point. I, you know, I've, I've been long on the uh, subject that uh, really what music s- schools need to teach instead of uh, chops and uh, you know proper form is uh, one, getting your ego out of the way and uh, two, how to behave and collaborate with other people uh, f- effectively. Yeah, it's it's interesting, man. There's a, there's, it's the things that, especially being a drummer, I've been a drummer for over 20 years, and the thing that I see the most is guys can chop it out, and they have all these chops, but it doesn't feel good, and it doesn't feel believable. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have that problem a lot with singers where I'm like, I don't be- fucking believe anything you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, are, is this a stylistic like jerk off session in my studio or do you mean this you know and obviously there's great people for every bad one too Mm -hmm. but it's just a really weird world we live in right now where you can make music really simply in Mm -hmm. terms of production you know you can make songs on your laptop when i was a kid you know pro tools didn't exist when i made our first music it was tape machines but i I, I actually technically existed it just wasn't popular yet well i mean it technically existed the the beta version they used on Nevermind on mm-hmm. certain parts, yeah. actually. Butch Big used on certain parts of Nevermind. Yeah, but it sound took designer like, too. I, I, I'm actually old enough that I, I I go back that far, so. Yeah, they were, they were, I saw an interview with Butch where he was talking about, it was actually a Pro Tools thing, mm-hmm. and he was talking about using Pro Tools on Nevermind, and he, there was a, there was a vocal part that Kurt couldn't sing, and he was trying to pitch it up, and it took two and a half days to render. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So no one used Pro Tools because it was impractical. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was it was unusable to the technically. You know what I mean? Well, I I worked at West West Side. I think we mastered uh they're only chasing safety. Uh we know oh, we did yeah, a lot of stuff with Wisner's stuff. Do um, you work there, do you work there now? I I don't. I haven't for probably over a decade, but uh I worked there oh, and wow. you know we had like 
you know, Sound Designer 2 and, like, Pro Tools 3, and it would literally be that thing of, like, about four records could fit on the hard drive. And yeah. It was like that thing yeah. of, like, you know, we spent more time swapping out records than we did mastering them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, like, it's a different world, you know what I mean? So anyways, it's so easy for people to make music, to make music now that that anyone can really be in a band. It's more about selling a brand these days than it is about selling a song. You know what I mean? Like, which is scary. Because when I was a kid, you went to shows and you bought records and you did all this stuff because you heard that the drummer was good or you heard the singer had great pipes or the guitar player was a fucking ninja. Like, it was never like, oh, he's gorgeous. You know, there's mm -hmm. so many bands today and I'll leave them unnamed, from, sure. especially from our genre of music that are hugely popular and can't play a note. Yep. Like, it's just because they're cute or have a lot of tattoos or are edgy or whatever, you know what I mean? And I think that there's a place for that. That's fine. I mean, that we've been doing that since the monkeys, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I, you know, I don't know, man, it's just a different thing being a producer now. Cause you kind of have to, most of my job mm -hmm. is being a psychologist. Yes. Like, honestly, like that's most of my job is trying to figure out how to get six dudes not to eat each other's lunch. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and, have them go, oh, oh, these are our songs. Let's let's do our songs the right way. You know what I mean? That, that's most of my job is saying, hey, like, let this other guy sing the harmony because you can't sing high enough. I know you mm -hmm. want to, but you can't. So, like, why don't you let somebody who can do it do it? So that's most of my job now. Honestly, mm -hmm. I wish more of my job was making music, you know? And, 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 then, and then again, now everyone wants to just hear auto-tuned, edited horse shit. Mm -hmm. So I spend so much time. I actually just hired someone because I got so sick of it. I was so tired of doing it. I didn't, do it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I was sick of editing. Uh, I hired Right someone. there with you. I literally hired someone. I was like, I'm like, I'll be here to make music. And as soon as they want the drums added to the wall, I'm out here. I'll give you $50 an hour. I'm not doing it. Mm. You know what I mean? So cool. I would rather give the money away than do it. It's so soul-sucking to me that I'd rather just pay someone. I can't do it. It's not, not, not the funnest part of record making. So, so you, you did hit on something that I th think is interesting, though, that is like no one teaches bands that I think music anymore that most of the records they like are somebody expressing an emotion. And you're talking about all this pain in your life that's expressing an emotion. And what I see a lot of the time with the bands you're talking about that, like when they come into my studio and they're a train wreck and they're just like, you know, nothing's working. It's because they're imitating other people instead of expressing what's inside them. Absolutely. I mean, I mean now, like, I don't know, you got to look at the facts. You don't, there's not, there's very, there's not a ton of new shit under the sun. So the only thing that makes something new is by doing it with a certain type of heart and a certain amount of soul. You know what I mean? I do. I really think that's the only thing that makes anything new now. So for me, I think that's like the biggest ticker is like, you need to focus on that as an artist, you know, because obviously like, I mean, under oath, we, we get considered so original all the time. We borrowed from so many people, dude. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, but we did it with a certain type of swagger. You know what I mean? Like we did it with a certain type of, I don't know, uh, demeanor and a certain type of emotion, you know? Oh, I, I, you know, what's funny is, uh, so I, I actually, so I just wrote a book on creativity and I talk a lot about how much people place emphasis on originality. And I don't think that people like originality. Like when I heard they're only chasing safety at West West side, I was like, wow, this is really original. But in my old age, what I feel like what it really is, is that you guys were expressing what was inside you from your influences, but you were guys were so fluent at it that you had different tools than other people. And that's what people mistake for originality. I trick people. I, I tell people all the time. I'm like, we tricked you. Mm. Like, you know, I, I, I literally hear people all the time say, you guys invented a genre of music. I'm like, no, we didn't. We just mm -hmm. mixed two together. Mm -hmm. Like I don't give us credit. We don't deserve. 
You know what I mean? Like, like we just did something well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we did it really fucking well. We just did mm-hmm. something well. And I think that's the, the world we live in now. It's like, I mean, I hear I had a band in last week. I'll leave them unnamed as well. And they were like, uh, how are kids going to sing along to this? And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like, they were like, can you imagine the sing along? And I was like, wait a second. Like, that's a cool thought. Fine. You know, mm-hmm. maybe there'll be a sing along. But why is that what you're focused on? Like, you know, I don't, I can say this with a good conscience. Like I never made a record and ever one time thought about, I hope people like this. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the biggest difference. Honestly, the biggest difference I see between people who have fans and don't have fans is that difference right there that you said. I mean, I I don't, you know, I, and that thought crosses my mind now, but when I was a kid, you know, and before chasing safety sold, 750,000 records like wow. we made that record because we liked Jimmy Eat World mm-hmm. and because we liked heavy music mm-hmm. and and we just tried to marry the two you know what I mean and then we made Define the Great Line which did a half a million in two months Wow! and we literally it sold it was number two on the billboards first sold 100,000 copies first week that wow. was the record after Define after Chasing Safety and we made that record and we didn't go we're just going to give a middle finger to the industry and make this crazy artsy record we just were doing what we wanted uh huh you know, and I think I think that's and not not to say all that to brag, but I'm those are those are just such great examples because I lived it with my friends. You know, like, and nowadays it's almost like I hear, do you think people will sing along to this more than I hear? Man, this really just feels like what I should be doing. You know what I mean? And and that's a scary fucking thing, right? Yeah, no, like that's a really this is literally the premise really of my book. Weird place. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's that's horrifying. a really weird place. I told my girlfriend the other day. I said, if this if there was something on telev- on MTV or something, some commercial for a record. If this gets popular, I'm going to move to Hawaii and <laughs> open a fish taco stand. And not, I mean, I'm, I know that sounds really jaded. And I, I love what I, I'm so blessed to get to do what I do. And I love it. It's just interesting to me that like, I don't know, man. Like, I think, I think about this all the time. This scares the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think if Bob Dylan put out blood on the tracks tomorrow that anyone would care? It's it's really hard to tell if there is like somebody doing work like that right now that just kn- it falls on deaf ears. Like I really wonder about that a lot. Is like do do we not recognize who's great these days? I don't think we do. I mean, think about like my favorite music, mm-hmm. like the the band mm-hmm. and Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin. Like I mean, you think if that came out today, like people would care. Like, do you really, I, I, I can answer you. I mm-hmm. mean, I can answer that. No, they wouldn't. Hmm. No, they wouldn't. They would, they would call it, they would call it something else. Mm-hmm. It would be like an, its own special thing because it's different. Or, you know, maybe it would be popular, but for some weird niche reason or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That scares the shit out of me. I, I, it, like, re- it really is a thing that, that, that it's a, it's a great point that like, we really with, don't with know if American we're losing Idol, our busters. Yeah. Like with American Idol and like. I've played on drums on American Idol and oh, really? The Voice with, with Paramore, yeah. And it's crazy because those people, we actually play with contestants on both shows. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because those people have superhuman talent. Mm-hmm. Like, superhuman talent as singers. Like, scary. And that's almost sort of what the consumer expects from popular music now because of those television shows. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like Johnny Cash, who is arguably the best songwriter of all time mm-hmm. couldn't sing bob dylan yes. has the worst fucking singing voice in the world literally the like, worst. i mean oh and have you seen him lately oh it's bad yeah, but yeah. you know it's one of those but he's he's a genius yep he's brilliant you know what i mean like that's the whole thing like 
you know, was, was Led Zeppelin pitchy at times? Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But like, we have just created a standard for ourselves that is ruining art. I believe mm-hmm. that. Like, everything is auto-tuned, melodyne. Mm-hmm. I mean, dude, I spent 40 hours melodyning on the last record I did. Wow. 40 yeah, hours. Yeah, it sounds about right. That's a work week, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's a whole job. It's, that's a, that, I, I could have, I could have built something. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, 40 hours. All I did was make something palatable to, to the consumer because they're not used to hearing something that isn't perfect. And the guy was a good singer. That's the thing. Wow. You know, like... Yeah, you just have to make mind, it perfect. You just have to make it perfect. Otherwise, and even the artist now is so glued to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Even the artist now is like, oh, it doesn't sound like this. Well, I'm like, that's auto-tuned to the wall. Is that what you want? Yeah. They're like, no, I just want it to sound great. And then by the time you turn in your first set of mixes, they're like, actually, I just want it auto-tuned to the wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's... But been it's there, yes. Cra- it's fucking crazy. You work in the studio business, you know. It's fucking crazy, man. Like... And it's soul sucking. So, you know, for me, I think that, sorry for the end rant. I just think that I just want to try to create great art and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, I'm, I'm past, I'm th- I'll am i be 34 mm-hmm. and I'm kind of past the age now of like standing on my soapbox being like, I'm going to change things. I, I, I don't give a shit to change anything. I just want to make great music and I want people to, to, to either find hope or hate or love or something in that music. So I like that. So let's uh, let's get into a thing with your production. We have a saying on this podcast that on like one side of the uh, scale, you have this Steve Albini who doesn't interfere at all with songs, barely tells you if a take is good, and then you have a John Feldman who fully rewrites the bad songs. What are you most often doing in your productions? I'm in the middle somewhere. Um, I'm big. I'm a big arranger. Like I said, I'm a big song guy. You know, like I think that that without some intervention you don't have the greatest song you can have mm-hmm. you know i think you need it like almost like a mediator within the band mm-hmm. you know to go okay like and you know what that's about you know it's like it's like the psychological thing of the whole deal but i you know and then again i'm not going to rewrite the whole thing and take all the publishing either mm-hmm. so but i do a little i'm in the middle you know if something is atrocious I'll rewrite it. I don't want my name on something that sucks, but if I don't like it, doesn't mean it's atrocious. Mm-hmm. You know, I've learned that. I've learned that as I've gotten older too. Like there's a lot of stuff I don't like. That doesn't mean it's bad. Totally. You know what I mean? Like I think gangster rap is fucking terrible, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it. That doesn't mean there's no talent there. Totally. You know what I mean? Like, so somebody could be a great, yeah. great polka player. I'm not going to recognize their talent. Yeah, I mean, I haven't liked rap since public enemy. Mm. So you know what I mean? Like there, that, yeah, there's that, there's that too. I do like the new Drake record a little bit, but you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I, like, I do. I do. I understand. It does. It, there's stuff that, that you do. So I've learned to kind of ride the line. I think, you know, Albini's stuff. I love, mm-hmm. uh, and I love a lot of John Feldman stuff and John Feldman's a dear friend of mine. And I think mm-hmm. that for me, I just kind of take a little bit from both schools and kind of land somewhere in a cocktail in the middle, you know? Nice. Yeah. So I'm one of the things with this podcast is we try to give good advice to aspiring musicians. I think we've already covered a lot of that, but I, the thing a lot of people can't talk about that I think you can is how obviously you guys had a ton of success. I mean, you've had success in two different bands, which is really rare. I imagine there's a lot of people whispering in your ear, really bad advice. Is there any advice you can impart to bands about how you made good decisions and continued to have a good career in music? Man, I made a lot of bad decisions. You know, Under Oath just got back together a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we're about to do our third tour back. We did a big U.S. tour and then some festivals, and we're going to Australia 
next year. And we just announced it the last week, but we made all the wrong decisions, but they were fortuitous to us because we meant them. You know what I mean? Like, like we made so many bad decisions. Like if we would have done certain types of radio edits, K rock would have blown that song, uh, song up and we would have been the biggest band in the country for a time. I think Under Oath has had such lasting power because we've all we've we've written accessible enough things that people love. We meant everything we said. We never compromised. You know, like in my opinion, this is a terrible. This is one of my heroes, and I should never, I should never compare myself. And I'm not. I'm just talking more mm. about career path as sure. someone like Tom sure. Waits. Someone like yes. Tom Waits. My my favorite. Yeah, my is my probably my favorite musician, or if maybe my second favorite musician. But that guy does whatever the fuck he wants. You know what I mean? He does quality things. Then someone says, we're going to synthesize you. We're going to syndicate you. We're going to do this. And he goes, no, thanks. And he is a millionaire and has has sold millions of records and will continue to because of that. So I think Under Oath has a little bit of that thing, like where we're like, we're going to do it our way. You know, but I would say this as, as advice, like do what your heart tells you to do. As cheesy and mm-hmm. stupid and Hallmark card as that sounds like, don't do something for any reason other than the fact that you love it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't do this job and make music because I have to. You know, I do it because I love it. The things that I do that I have to do make me question why I do this all the time. Mm. You know, when I have to spend three months away from my child or, or 18 hours on a flight to Australia, I'm like, wait, 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 why am I doing this again? You know what I mean? But then I realize when I get on stage, like, I do this because I love it. But mm. there is an element of, like, you know, this sucks mm-hmm. sometimes. You know what I mean? And I think that if there's an element of that, this sucksness and you're creating it all you're doing the wrong thing do something else you know what i mean like so to me it's like if i don't enjoy my art i don't want to do it so that's what i would tell kids these days is like don't do it to get famous like you know don't do it to look cool or to get girls or drugs or whatever do it because you love it you know (laughs) i mean every single person in my band was a loser like we all grew up with no money like the the not cool guys in school you know, Spencer played in like a seven seconds cover band and he was like the size of a size of an 11 year old in high school. Some of us are even homeschooled, just kind of the dregs, man, you know? Mm. So I, and we just did this because we loved it and it worked. But I think a lot of people nowadays, it's so, like I was saying before, it's so accessible to put out music. So it's almost like you can shit onto a hard drive and go, look how cool we look though. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's there just there like, is a lot of that. How does that work though? Like I would feel, I would feel conviction somehow from that, you know? But mm. again, like, yeah, I think the, the the piece of advice is just do it because you love it. Do it because you want to do it. Don't do it because you have to or because you, you know, feel like it'll make you somebody that you're not already, you know? I, I like that a lot. So one of the questions I always ask on this podcast, which I think you've kind of already defeated by talking about so many different of these artists, what's an influence on you that people would be shocked by? But I, after what we've talked about, I doubt anything's going to be that shocking. Uh, I do. There's even weirder stuff. I love music. Man, I, like I said, I collect vinyl. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a music fan mm-hmm. first. And I love, I love like, like jazz. Okay. Um, my best friend when I was a kid in school played bass for Sonny La Rosa, America's Youngest Jazz Band, and went to played Montreux and the whole thing. So he always got me into jazz. So I love jazz. I collect old jazz records and listen to old jazz records. And then again, I, you know, I love all the rock and roll, modern, a lot of mo- rock, modern rock and roll music. I love 90s rock, I think, the most in terms of modern rock music. I love mm. like Oasis and... I love that old Duncan Sheik record and the the Vertical Horizon record. I love mm-hmm. all that stuff. Like when people were making, I love the Matchbox Twenty records. Like when people were making music, like just going in and writing these great fucking songs, you couldn't deny. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there was great songs at that. I think that's the best era of 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 modern pop music to me. The '80s were a little bit too sugary for my blood. 
But the 90s were like, we're going to wear a flannel and write this amazing song. Mm. You know, like Nirvana to me was genius. Like mm -hmm. that's the most genius thing that's probably ever happened in my life. It definitely ever happened in my lifetime. So, you know, uh, so there's, there's, there's all the normal stuff that I love, but there's a lot of shocking ones that like Tom Waits is my hero. Mm -hmm. And mostly for him, I do love his music, but mostly my, my, my love for Tom Waits is in his ethic. Really? You know? So, so what like, parts of the ethic? Just, just, he's kind of like, you know, he's never really been a guy that's like, put me on your soundtrack. Like he doesn't mm -hmm. really shop himself. You know what I mean? He just, he does this thing and he's continued to do it the same way for 40 years and it mm -hmm. works and he doesn't care. And I got, I get a feeling with him. Maybe there's not many other people with him. He would do it no matter what. It really, you know does what I seem mean? Like a, yeah, like that. That the fame was accidental for him in in a way, and like. Yeah, and it just doesn't seem like. Do you think he would like? Do you think if he had the idea to write swordfish trombones, mm -hmm. like tomorrow, he would still do it? Of course he would. You know, he wasn't trying to get a rise out of anybody. He's just fucking crazy. You know what I mean? Like, so I I love that ethic, kind of that. I, I, it's funny, like the the record I've been producing for the past couple of months is bit, that's probably hit, the biggest influence is him. And one of the interesting things we found in like an interview is like him talking about that a lot of people mistake him for being weird for weird sake. But what it is is like he gets a narrative in his head, and then he has to find new instruments to be able to express that narrative. And that's why you get some of these weird sounds. It's like, well, I don't know anything that sounds like it, but I know what it sounds like in my head. And yeah, you know, it's. It's like when we started putting ribbon mics in between like a ride cymbal and a rack tom, like mm. however many years ago, whoever, whosever fault that was. Yeah. You know, uh, like, which I think might've been Chad Blake who, uh, engineered a lot of those Tom Waits records. I, I think you're right. Mm. I think, mm. you're, but you know that you, you, you're like, Oh, I kind of want the drums to sound a little more like shit. Mm -hmm. Like I'm actually sitting behind them. And now that's such a huge thing. I make drum, drum loops and shit for people mm. with just that ribbon mic. Huh. You know what I mean? So I think, I think that's the whole Tom Waits thing is like, oh yeah, like I just hear this thing and I don't know how to, and, and, and that, again, that just adds to the, to the, to the, the ethic of love that I have for him. Like mm. that's a weird, I mean, that's a weird thing to do. Like, yeah. And, and for me, like that, that's kind of where I've been stuck in my own music for the past couple of years is I just, everything is so synthesized now and mm. I just don't like to make that kind of music. Mm. So I'm trying to just be quiet enough to make, to make it go the other way which is why you have this record, the record that we talked about today, I mm -hmm. recorded in three days. There's not oh, wow. one edit and not one piece of auto-tune. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to make like the rawest, realest, bizarre. I have a, you know, I have a huge vintage instrument collection. I didn't use anything that was made before the 70s and just, oh, wow. you know, Very just cool. did it. Other than Pro Tools, obviously. So. Yes. <laughs> that that seems to always be the exception now, is everybody has a studio that, like, you know, I see all these studios, it's like, state-of-the-art 1972. Well, except that computer over there. Yeah. And except for the uh, iPhone to use as a decibel meter and to align the speakers. I, You know, I man, I wish, I really do wish that I could just go back to Studer and just, but I don't, I don't have the time. Yeah, like really you, I mean, you've been making records for a long time. I the first record, the first, the first couple records I ever made were to tape. Can you imagine, like, like, and those were as an artist, not a producer. I can't. I mean, can you imagine? You know what it does to, you know what it takes to do a vocal edit on tape is a fucking razor blade and a bunch of scotch tape, and it takes like three hours. You know what I mean? Like now, it, it's just it's just not economical because record budgets are a quarter of what they used to be. Like, I can't afford to hire someone to keep a tape machine working. It is that thing is it's like, uh, you know, like all those sayings like pick two and it's like budget 
time, talent. It's like there's a resource in there that's going to be very rough if you don't have all three of those going. Well, well right. I mean, and, and, to, and to me, I'd rather have the performance in the song than, than the gear. You know, like if you look at like, you know, these days you're you're in the studio business. So, you know, there's all these pro, pro tools, plugs and waves, plugs and and UAD plugs that are like Abbey Road one, Abbey mm-hmm. Road two, uh, Ocean Way. Well, guess what? When you when people were making those records that have those iconic sounds, guess what was at those studios? Four tracks of nothing Pullman mm-hmm. and like just great songs and great performances. So I, I kind of want to get back to that. Mm. You know, and I'm not saying doing like a stripped down kind of T-bone Burnett approach. I'm just mm. saying, like, I think if I'm going to let anything go, it's going to be the production. Well, you, you know, I, when I was researching this book I just wrote, the, they say, like, the single thing that actually inspires creativity the most is limitations. And we're living in a yeah. world, world, like, Pro Tools is the world with no limitations. And I do really think it's an, is, inter- an interesting thing to like pare back your tool set and impose some things. I see a lot of people get great results from doing that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I did this thing all year last year. I told my assistant, I said, you can do what you want, but I'm going to run Pro Tools like a tape machine. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going to use loop record. I'm not going to use quick punch. Hmm. I'm going to use it like a tape machine because that's how, that's how I feel like I made some of the best music in my own life was by... Feel, feeling like I had to be good enough to do it. Really you know? is a thing. Like when we when we went to make Chasing Safety, this was 03 when we recorded mm-hmm. that record, like we showed up fucking ready. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like we had it figured out. And you guys like recorded we, that relatively fast, I imagine. Oh, like three weeks. Yeah, yeah two and a half weeks. That's, that's, that's quick for a record that complex. So yeah, you had to be I mean, prepared. But we were ready. Like, mm-hmm. And I, you know, we, I just played my first show 10 months ago with Under Oath in seven years of being in the band. And I had no hiccups on those songs. That's how many times I played those fuckers. And I'm 33 years old. I was 20 years old when we wrote those songs. Damn. And I've been playing for Paramore, my own thing, producing hundreds of records. And I could remember those songs. That's how burned that shit was into my brain. These days, people show up and they're like, what's the strumming pattern? And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, you just spent 10 grand to make this EP and you don't know what the drummer's playing. Like, you were in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like... You know, so to me, I, I spent a year like doing that and it was really, it was nice for me because it, it got frustrating at times because I knew I could just batch something and fix it, mm-hmm. but I was making people actually sing, you know, and I was making drummers actually play the click and, you know, I, I have such a, I have, as a drummer myself, soul, the most soul sucking thing in the world is beat detective. Yeah. Like I, doing I that. the worst. Like, and, and replace, that one makes me want to kill myself. Like I can't, that is the one thing about my job that I wish that I could just erase. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I spent a year kind of like doing it in the hard knocks way and it was really good for my soul too, you mm-hmm. know? So. Very cool. Yeah. So the last question is what's next? What do you got coming up? I headed out in two more weeks of this thing. Uh, I'm going to take holidays off. And then I'm going to do the Under Oath tour in Australia. And then a bunch of stuff I can't talk to you about. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet. That if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. 
To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 